Well, hello everyone and welcome to this month's issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine. Today we're going to be talking about Critical Decisions issue February 2020. As you know, Critical Decisions is ASAP's official CME publication. In each issue, there are two lessons and we talk about the critical decisions that you need to think of while you're facing these issues. In addition to the two lessons, there are many other components to this publication. There's the critical image, critical EKG, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So let's start with the first article, which is called Exit Plans, Suicidal Patients. So thank you to Dr. Jillian Horning and Dr. Katherine White for writing this article. I feel like we talk about heart disease, cancer, trauma a lot in certainly our medical education, but suicide is actually among the top 10 leading causes of death in all age groups. How can we screen for these patients better in the ED? Before I talk about that, you're absolutely right, Wendy. I don't think we talk enough about this or learn enough about it. I think we do learn some stuff, but then we know, hey, they've been screened and you know what, they're positive or negative. And I'm just like, okay, well, how does that even help us? And the reason is that not all suicidal patients exhibit traditional warning signs. So there's an actually a really great figure in the article, figure one, and it has the suicide warning signs, which is not necessarily someone coming up and saying, hey, I want to hurt myself. And what's interesting and sad at the same time is that 40% of successful suicides have visited the ED in the year prior for non-psychiatric complaints. So they were there, they were in touch with us, in contact with us, but at that time they they did not raise the flag. And that's the whole point of the screening is, can we find them? And although the, the Joint Commission requires that we screen for suicide, there's actually no validated tools that show us that this screening actually gets us to where we need to be. However, what we know is that universal screening, which means screening everyone that comes through the door, is going to identify twice as much as just targeted screening, which is who we think we need to screen, which is kind of not the point of screening. Right. Wow. So I find that when we explicitly ask the patients about their suicidal ideation and plan can be uncomfortable sometimes. It's important to remember, especially in this article, that when we do ask them about their thoughts and plans doesn't actually incite or encourage them to harm themselves. You are absolutely right. It is uncomfortable and the only way we can get better is practice, practice, practice. And definitely we're not going to make them think of suicide. However, I did have a patient, um, I think last week, and I was talking to her. It's an older lady who was coming in saying that she's tired of living. It was very passive. And then asked if she wanted to hurt herself and she said, well, I don't have guns or knives, so how else can I hurt myself? And I was not going to answer that question. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like... I looked at her medication list and I'm like, I'm not going to give you any ideas right now. (laughs) So I just said, well, you know what, ma'am? You're absolutely right and moved on. So don't give them ideas, but definitely ask and be specific. Something to keep in mind is that initially, if you just ask people the question of, do you want to hurt yourself? 25% of people are initially going to deny suicidal ideation. So there's a lot of behavioral cues. So the goal of doing all of this is not to figure out any intent, but to explore the level and and the strength of that intent, because that is what's going to determine whether this person needs immediate and acute intervention. Got it. So what are some things we need to do to keep our patients safe in the ED? One-to-one observation is helpful. Another one is sharps check. So you need to make sure that the person that you're assessing doesn't have any sharp equipment with them in the room. 
And then you need to secure their belongings in case they have any weapons in there. And then there's a lot of local and state regulations that you need to understand for involuntary holds to make sure that you are complying with your regulations for that. I see. So I feel like a common question that comes up for a lot of people is, do we need to order tests on these patients? Oh, gosh. No, no, no. Not everyone needs tests. And that was explicitly discussed in the ASAP guidelines. If you're having some a lot of pushback at your facility and that's the status quo, just please share the ASAP guidelines with them. The goal that you're trying to do, and it's not to medically clear people. You're not going to you know, clear them from all the medical problems they have. What you're trying to do is to make sure that they don't have any acute medical condition that precludes an adequate psychiatric evaluation. So, for example, like drug ingestion, a trauma, do they have a, are they hypoglycemic, which is why they're agitated, or they have a head bleed that's causing that to happen. But routinely testing everyone, where people say, oh, I'm ordering psych labs, I'm like, I don't know what that even means. Right. That is not a thing. Now, there are people that are high risk, so older adults, people who are immunocompromised, just like they hide other medical problems when they're coming in with, for example, let's say belly pain, then they can hide infections and badness when they're coming in looking like it's a psychiatric complaint. People who have new onset psychosis are definitely something that we need to address. Um, the article doesn't explicitly talk about that, but encephalitis is definitely something you need to think about and talk about. And if this person is coming in with what looks like psychosis and no clear history, nothing like that, an LP may be warranted even. So your labs are not going to help. You need to be specific to their cause. All right. So let's say you have a patient who comes in with suicidal ideations, clinically not worried about anything else medically going on. How do we assess this patient's risk of suicide? So a comprehensive risk assessment is typically performed by mental health practitioners because they do this a lot more often. They're a lot more comfortable with the conversations and understanding the risks. However, there's a lot of tools that we can use as well. Let's say you work in a setting where you don't have immediate access and you're trying to you know, triage people and see who needs that. So one thing is the suicide assessment five-step evaluation and triage, which is also called the SAFE-T. So it talks about risk factors, protective factors, suicide inquiry, risk level and need for intervention, and documentation. And figure two outlines the acute and chronic risk factors and protective factors that you need to ask about. The best known predictor of future suicidal behaviors is a prior suicide attempt. So that's definitely something we need to ask about. And then some people are chronically suicidal. They've lived that way for most of their adult life. And the focus should be on why now. So someone's chronically suicidal and they just lost their housing or they are going through a bereavement or something like that, then that helps you identify that they have an acute stressor that may cause them to have more of an imminent risk to themselves rather than their chronic risk. Acute alcohol use in the final hours of life is a greater threat than chronic alcohol use just by itself. And then protective factors are things like social support, reasons for living, things like having children and pet. People are going to tell you, I'm not going to leave this world. Who's going to take care of my dog? Bam. That's a massive protective factor that this person has that's going to help you weigh things down. However, there's no evidence-based system how much you can weigh each factor, right? So you can't say, oh, well, this is the Waltz criteria for figuring out who is going to actually go through with that intent and move it into an attempt. Okay. Certainly, by some of these assessments, you can figure out who you need to admit. There are some things that we can use to help us 
kind of figure out that scale. And again, as we said, it's not really a weight scale. So you have the modified sad person scale and the Manchester self-harm rule that are also present in the article. And the best way to say is that you categorize them using these to low, moderate, or high risk. And remember that ASAP does say that screening tools should not be used in isolation because you can screen people, but then you just have this gut feeling or you know them well. We And we do know that, right? There's a lot of patients that we see on a regular basis. And there is that day when they come in and although, you know, they're scoring the same way on the scale, there's something that's different. There's something that's off. So definitely go with your gut feeling. Remember that if a patient is unable to care for themselves, they don't know or don't have access to do something when they're going through a crisis, then you really need to figure out if you need to admit them until these circumstances change. How about who can we discharge? So people with no plan or intent can be discharged. People who have no prior attempt. The article says no history of mental illness or substance abuse, which I think makes it really difficult. Um, I think from my prior reading, I think it's mostly people who are not psychotic. Those are a lot easier to, you know, weed out and say, okay, well, those are a lot safer. People with psychosis definitely can't be sent out if they're suicidal. And people who are not agitated or irritable, people who have support systems, people who can follow up. Um, a couple of things that I would add in addition to this are people who are future oriented as well. And people who are not impulsive, because impulsive people scare me very much. That's true. That's a good point. Are there any other things that we should do before we discharge a patient? Remember that you, as the emergency physician, you have the final authority and responsibility for the discharge decision. So depending on what setting you have, who does these comprehensive mental health evaluations, usually it's a social worker or liaison or so on, they can recommend whatever they feel like recommending, and that's a great thing coming from their experience, but it is your final responsibility. If you feel like that person should not be discharged and they should be admitted, then it is your responsibility. Advocate for the patient, get the psychiatrist in, do what you need to do because you are the one who is ultimately responsible. You always need to have a safety plan as well. There are some templates available online at suicidesafetyplan.com. This whole, like, they contract for safety thing is... This so the facial expression of Wendy is like, no, no. Yeah. And you're exactly. absolutely right. That's just making you feel better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it absolutely is. And I remember when I started working in an environment where we'd see a lot of these patients, someone was like, yeah, they contract for safety. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. And until this day, I still don't know what that means. So if they do have a safety plan, if they can verbalize that they understand, for example, who they can reach out to, if they have family support. For example, in our setting, we have like Baltimore crisis response. I'm sure that in your setting, you have something somewhat similar. If they know how to get in touch with that, how to access that resource, then that is definitely something you need to do while they're leaving. And I print that out in the additional instructions. If you're having any issues, come back or call this phone number. That's a great point. And then something that's important, and unfortunately, we don't do as good of a job at that. There was actually a study that was published recently that says that we don't actually ask patients if they have access to guns. I actually do remember a case um, that I had a few years ago where a patient came in, they were seen by the social worker, and they were determined to be safe to be discharged. However, that social worker was pretty good at what she does because then she called the police who had brought him in, and they searched his car, and he had more than a handful of 
guns wow. in the car that were not even his own guns. Mm-hmm. And that definitely changed the disposition of that person. He was not safe to go home by himself because we were worried that he was going to carry out his intent of suicidal and homicidal ideation. That's a good reminder for sure. Thank you, Dania, for taking us through this article. I think it was a great reminder on how to certainly screen for these patients and keep them safe. And I learned that universal screening is better than targeted screening. And really, you have to be explicit in exploring the level and strength of a person's suicidal intent. Definitely routine labs are not needed. You want to figure out if there's anything else medically that could be contributing to their symptoms. The risk assessment part is complex and you're really just trying to figure out, you know, can you really safely discharge a patient if they have the ability to care for themselves, if they have the support system, if they can formulate a safety plan, if they don't have access, like Tanya's case, to lethal means. And of course, uh, if they have ability to follow up as an outpatient. So now moving on to critical procedures, we're going to talk about the removal of retained needle fragments. Wendy, do we actually need to remove retained needle fragments? Not unless there's a complication. I think we see these needle fragments often, just incidentally. Uh, But if a patient is presenting with infection related to it, that might prompt you to remove it. If it is embolized, then call a vascular or cardiothoracic surgeon. I think the most common situation that we might encounter a retained fragment with a complication is infection with an abscess. Don't forget that if you're dealing with maybe an abscess related to IV drug use to get an x-ray to rule out a foreign body. That's definitely a great reminder because I don't often x-ray abscesses, but definitely something to do. So how are we supposed to do it? Well, you can actually use the ultrasound since uh, that's easily accessible. And that can be used to evaluate, you know, how close this foreign body is to the neurovascular structures. You can mark the skin in size to get to the foreign body or even insert a needle to act as a guide for your dissection. Got it. And of course, be careful not to get poked with the needle while you're taking it out. Moving on to our critical EKG. This EKG goes through the differential of peaked T waves. Ooh, ooh, hyperkalemia. <laughs> yes, but there's also a lot of other things that can cause it, which is why it's a differential. Uh, okay. And the most important part is ischemia. So the article goes through how to differentiate these two and has like pictures and stuff. So definitely take a look at it. You don't want to always look at this EKG and say, oh, it's hyperkalemia. And then, you know, Six hemolyzed labs later realize that their potassium is fine and they're actually just having ischemia that is now a STEMI. Absolutely. For our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month, it's actually a case of an occult calcaneus fracture and a reminder on why we actually need to measure angles in the ED. (laughs) So bowler angle. You can totally Google it to see where to measure it and the normal number is 25 to 40. If it is less than that... So smaller angles are bad, and you should think of a calcaneal fracture. And um, interestingly, when I looked at the CT that is in the article, I'm like, oh, that is not a cult. (laughs) (laughs) That is like a massive fracture. But on the x-ray, it is a cult. So definitely measure your angles. Because a lot of us, especially in community settings, we read our own plain x-rays at night. True. And now for your favorite. Oh, stop smiling, Wendy. I didn't even say it. So the LLSA review, which talks about opioid prescribing policies, and it is 
Opioid overdoses is the number one cause of accidental death in the United States. It has superseded motor vehicle accidents or motor vehicle collisions. Yeah, this was a fascinating article by Osborne and colleagues. It talks about a protocol where they decreased opioid use by collaborating with primary care physicians and um, try to screen for risk factors of misuse. And they were actually successful in decreasing opioid prescriptions from the ED by 40%, especially in younger patients, patients who had musculoskeletal complaints like back pain and joint pain. Uh, and these included prescriptions for oxycodone, hydromorphone, etc. And this decrease in the number and the size of the prescriptions from the ED were sustained for at least the two and a half years of their follow-up period. That is fantastic. Definitely a big push of moving away from narcotics for patients or opioids for patients who don't need them. Unfortunately, we do all see this. Patients are getting prescribed opioids for things that they don't need opioids for, like a sore throat. <laughs> you or laugh. the flu. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, what? So thankfully, with this big push, there's a lot of movement away from that. But remember that if you are in a big academic place and you're having this push, that's not the same case for every single place around you. True. All right. So so for our second lesson today, we have protecting your nest, personal finance for emergency physicians. And this is a very timely topic because one is the beginning of the year and people start realizing how one, they don't know what they're doing and two, how badly they've managed their finances because it's not just that we don't know what we're doing or at least I'm talking about myself. It's that sometimes you're so busy that you don't have time to stop for this and do that. And the people we get to talk to are people who just work in finance and we're like, you don't know anything about my life and you don't know what to tell me. But with us today is Dr. Sairam Balasubramanian, who I had the pleasure of working with at his time at Maryland, and he's now an attending physician. Sai, where did you go? Where are you now? Oh, so no, I'm at Sinai Hospital, not too far away from uh, university. So I am right in the neighborhood, and it's great to hear from you guys. Well, welcome on this podcast, Sai. And it's definitely an important topic, irrelevant of whether you're an emergency physician or any physician or just, you know, like a person who exists. You really need <laughs> to know how to deal with your finances. So Sai, Tell us about your awesome life before emergency medicine. So I had a kind of quirky career starting out. I was an engineer when I came out of my undergrad. And then I decided, you know what, I'm not going to use any of that. And I went into IT consulting, mostly for financial service companies, you know, think big banks, companies like that. And then I decided, all right, I'm going to try to switch and get my MBA. So I did that. And Talk about overachieving. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it. Or it's like, you know what? I didn't really know what I was doing. So I was just going around a little bit. So then I finally, my last job before I went down the medicine road was for Bloomberg company. Lots of finance, lots of software, lots of data. And it's okay. you just pick up a lot of... Bloomberg. <laughs> I've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. You know, he's kind of in the news right now. But his company did a lot of data, finance, their media, kind of every space possible. So I picked up some stuff there before coming to medicine. So it's been an interesting journey. I think I'm hoping to hopefully leverage some of the things I've used in the past and then hopefully get people to be aware of things as a physician. So that's kind of where I'm thinking. Great. Absolutely. I think your experience definitely brings a lot of value. Uh, and thank you for writing this article. And I love that there's actually the cases are really relevant, you know, for people in various stages in medicine, whether you're a medical student, 
just graduating uh, residency and our early career attending or even a mid-career attending, you can look at the cases and probably find that you've been in similar boats. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, there's no wrong or right time to make yourself aware of finance and get investing and to save and to figure out how to manage everything in your life because that's important and we don't necessarily get taught that in residency. We're so busy learning the medicine side that finance kind of takes a back seat. And I think it's, it's a good skill to have regardless of what you're doing. Absolutely. So let's talk about all the critical decisions that we need to make literally every day about our finances. So take us away, Sai. What do you think is the most important thing to talk about when it comes to our personal finances? So lots of topics to cover. I think one thing that's important for every one of us to do is create a budget. Budgeting gives you a sense of our, what's my financial health? What am I spending my money on? Where's my money going? What am I saving? And I think as a general rule, you want to look at expenses as fixed expenses and variable expenses. So what that means is fixed is something like rent, mortgage payments, property tax, something that you pay every month. It's the same dollar amount every month. And then variable expenses are ones that are maybe more discretionary or something that may change depending on how you feel at the grocery store. You may spend $100 a month on groceries, you may spend $300 a month, and you have control over that every month. Another part of the budget is actually savings. And what the rule is, or general rule of thumb, is you want to try to save 20%. So now you're left with 80% for your expenses. And then within each of those categories, you know, they say you should do about 50% of your budget should be should be fixed. And then within the fixed expenses, they don't want you to go over 25% for housing. So, I mean, there's a lot of percentages involved here. These are all rules of thumb. But I think it gives a good gauge of where you should be putting your money and how you should be allocating it. So those are the big categories, fixed, variable. And then you have something called irregular expenses. So irregular expenses really just means maybe it happens once a year. Maybe it happens once every six months. But you want to make sure to account for that in your budget. So that if you're spending holiday gifts and you're spending $500 on holiday gifts, all right, divide that by 12. And now you've got a monthly amount that you can take into account in your budget. So that way, every dollar is accounted for. You're not losing dollars to one category or another. And the one thing to remember with budgets are it's not like you make it and then it's done and you don't have to worry about the budget anymore. It's a constant changing, evolving instrument, let's say. So you want to make sure that you're reevaluating your budget and it still makes sense for you. You know, maybe do it every six months, maybe do it once a year and use that going forward every year. <laughs> that makes any sense. So looking at budgets, there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, you can do it yourself in Excel. If you're really good with Microsoft Excel, you're like, you know what? I got this. I'm going to make a spreadsheet. So all I nope. have to do is just to put things in cells. That's all I have to do in Excel. So maybe not for me, really. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a little easier. There are, there are. And thankfully, there's a lot of tools out there that people can use. And, you know, as an example, people use TurboTax, for example. They have a budgeting tool called Mint, which you can use. I think it's actually free. There's another one called Every Dollar, which is free. But then if you want to do more advanced things, they charge you a yearly fee. And these are very straightforward. You literally kind of enter your data, your numbers, where your money's going, and then it kind of spits out this formula and what you should be looking for and where's your money going, things like that. So that's really straightforward. So there are budgeting programs out there. It's just a matter of how much time you have to put into it because, you know, we're all busy and not everyone wants to do it on their own. And there's so many tools out there and they're relatively inexpensive. So that's probably a good way to go. Gotcha. I guess creating a budget is one thing, but sticking to it is another thing. <laughs> 
I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, that's the hard part. Like <laughs> I know. I, I feel like my, I have a lot of flexible expenses in there. Um, <laughs> no, so I said 50% for your fixed mm-hmm. and then 30 for your variable and then 20% for your savings. I am listening. Oh, good job. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Those are the important numbers right there in terms of a budget. So that if you can save more than 20%, by all means do it because savings is savings. You retire early. So you can spend more on other things that you want to do. So, you know, 50, 30, 20, I think that's a good start. Awesome. So what about investment? So I personally like to invest my money right where I can see it, which is my closet. But I don't think that's going to be size advice for us. (laughs) (laughs) You know, investing in a closet could work. And if it's a magic closet and then you open the door and your money is all of a sudden doubled, hey, that's not a bad investment. But I want to buy that closet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, investing is such a broad category, right? So I think just to get some basic definitions down, let's talk about stocks, talk about bonds, what they are. You know, stocks, the bare minimum, what they represent is an ownership and company, and you can buy that essentially by buying a stock. Bond is another type of investment. It's basically like an IOU. Companies want to raise money for themselves. So they're like, all right, we'll borrow money from our investors, and then we'll pay them an interest rate every year. And then when it's all done, we'll give you your money back. So those are typically less risky. So bonds, they don't pay as much in terms of return, but they're less risky. Stocks, you know, you think of companies like Apple or Amazon, and you could buy a piece of that and invest and hopefully your money grows over time. I think the way to look at stocks is there's so many different categories and a lot of them overlap as well. So you have the size of a company, you know, it's a small company, which in our terms, we say less than $2 billion. $2 billion sounds like a lot of money. But in terms of how they categorize these companies, that it's actually small. small. That's, not, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of closets. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot of closets. But it is in terms of what they call a small cap, small capitalization, it's less than $2 billion. Then you have companies that are kind of in the middle, mid, middle capitalization, 2 to $10 billion. And then large companies is anything over $10 billion. Another way to classify companies is, is it a growth company or a value company? Growth companies are the ones that Companies that grow very quickly, companies like if you can imagine Tesla or Apple even is growing year after year quite a bit. So investors expect high returns because these companies are growing so fast. Then you have value companies, which have been around forever. Think of GE, companies that are very stable, have been around for 50, 60 years, and they pay back dividends to investors. Dividend is basically a payment that companies make out of their revenues and they give it back to your investor. So those have been around for such a long time that they can do that. And then you have domestic and international companies. So think companies that are in the U.S. versus companies that are outside. These categories I just talked about, you know, the size, where they're located, growth versus value, they're not independent. You can have a company that's classified all three ways. Again, these are just ways to think about companies and how you want to invest and where to put your money. In terms of, you know, people who don't want to buy individual companies because they don't want to put all their money in one basket, you can look at mutual funds. So mutual funds are essentially a basket of stocks. You have a manager who puts all the money into different companies for you, and you just buy a piece of that fund. And then you could just monitor that, reevaluate as time goes on, but you don't have to buy individual companies. The fund manager has done all the work for you. I will say one of the things to watch out for are the fees that are associated with mutual funds. You ought to be careful of fees like expense fees, load fees, which if you look on their websites for all these brokerage companies, you could see where and how much those fees are. ETFs is another category. So that's, that stands for exchange traded funds. It's the same idea as your mutual fund, but the expenses are essentially a lot lower. So that's become very popular in the last several years. 
Again, they do have a little bit of fees, but it's not like mutual funds. So these are all tools to look at. You know, you don't have to invest in individual stocks. No one's going to go researching every individual stock. We don't have the time for that. But you have these other financial instruments that can do it for you. Got it. I mean, that still sounds very complex. Do people get financial advisors to help with this? They absolutely do. Yes. So you have advisors that are out there who will make recommendations. They will sit down with you, evaluate your portfolio, what your goals are, what's your risk tolerance, and they'll come up with a plan for you. Now, financial advisors, they're everywhere. You just have to be careful who you pick because you just want to make sure they're, they have your best interest. They're, they have a fiduciary responsibility to you, meaning they're not going to rip you off, essentially. So I think when you look at them, there's different models of how you pay them. Some advisors will charge you an hourly fee. Some will charge you a flat fee, meaning, all right, you know, my fee is a thousand dollars. I'll do all the work for you. I'll set everything up. We're done. And then you have something called a fee based on your assets under management. So what that means is, if you have, let's say, $100,000 and they're managing it and they say, all right, I'm going to charge 2% of that as my fee, as your assets grow, the fee grows as well. Because say your 100000 becomes $200,000, now the fees become $4,000. So again, you want to be careful with what structure you're looking at. A lot of physicians use the same advisors because of word of mouth. I think that's a pretty good way to go because if you trust someone's advice, you're more willing to trust their financial advisor. So that's a good way to start. When it comes to investing, though, I think the key when we all come out of residency and become a new attending is to invest what you can, but definitely pay off your debts. I think that's probably the next topic I would focus into is you want to get your student debt off your hands as quickly as possible. Got it. So what I'm hearing you say is that we need to pick probably a mutual fund. Either it's managed by a human being or um, it's an index fund. So it just follows the index and that's going to have like lower fees. And then if we decide to work with a financial advisor, then we need to understand how they are taking part of our money. So with that money, we were going to invest and then put money in retirement and then pay off debt in some sort of order. So how do we decide like which one is more important? Now, where to start and how much? I think that's going to be very dependent on each individual. If you have a lot of student debt and it's at high interest rates or reasonably high interest rates, you want to pay that off because that's going to be lingering in the background. It's going to be collecting interest as you go. And the longer it goes on, you're just paying more and more interest. One of the things I think we all learned in residency was to live like a resident for at least two, three, five years, whatever it takes to dramatically reduce your student debt. You know, unfortunately, one of the issues that we all deal with is that medical school is expensive. Our residency salaries are okay, but they don't cover a lot of the debt that we have to get rid of. So we come out making an attending salary. It's important to remember that we still have all this debt hanging over our heads and to try to get rid of that first. Then you can start attacking, all right, here's what I want to invest and here's what I want to put my money. So I think that's probably the way to go as a general framework. Each person is going to be different depending on how much debt they have. The average debt based on, I think, the AAMC survey recently was $192,000 for a resident, which is only going to get worse, I think. Everything is rising in cost. So that's just something to keep in mind that you have all this debt. You want to get rid of that first. I see. So in terms of retirement, since we all have to start planning for that. So so there's these things that we do, I guess, before taxes are paid and after taxes are paid and stuff work gives us. That's about how much I understand. <laughs> so, so the article actually has a lot of very interesting figures. And this one has, I like that it looks like an egg. But it's a broken egg. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm like. I don't know why the bag is broken. <laughs> but but let's glue it together and figure out how we're gonna retire how we're gonna retire and put money in there. Absolutely, yeah. So so you have these different kinds of accounts, and we'll break them down into what we're calling tax advantage versus tax deferred, 
you know, each employer, hopefully your employer, whoever is giving you retirement accounts will give you, uh, what do you call it? Either 401k or if you're in the academic or university setting, 403b, 457b, all these are tax advantage accounts, meaning you can contribute pre-tax to this account, which means that the money is taken out even before it's taxed. It's put into this account and then it sits there and grows over time, depending on how you want to invest it. And then at the end of 30 years, 40 years, when you're ready to retire, you're able to withdraw the money and then you pay the tax on it. So that's the tax advantage. Then you have these things called tax deferred accounts. So the money that you're contributing to retirement, the tax up front, but then it grows tax free. And then when you take it out, it's tax free. So that's a huge deal because now you've got 30 years of growth potentially or 40 years of growth. And every year, let's say it's growing six, seven, eight percent, depending on how the markets are doing. That's a substantial amount of money that when you take it out, won't be taxed at all. So I think you have to look at what your tax brackets are going to be and which makes sense for you either getting a tax now or getting a tax at the end. And then there's the other thing where um, your employer actually just gives you a bunch of money to put in these accounts, right? The matching thing? Oh, correct. Absolutely. The matching is a very nice feature that a lot of employers do. And basically, they match you dollar for dollar or maybe 50 cents on the dollar money that they'll contribute on your behalf to your account. And that's essentially free money. I was just going to say, so basically someone is giving you money in exchange for you putting money away for retirement. So what I understand is that if someone is doing that for you, then take it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even if you don't really want to put that much money towards retirement, you should put at least whatever it takes to get that free money from your employer. But but here's the million dollar question, right? How much money do I actually need for retirement? Because I have to spend a lot of money now too, and not just save money for later for when I'm too old to spend it. But I only eat ramen when we're retired. Uh, not not ramen from the box. I, I will not eat that big package <laughs> stuff. No. <laughs> Real ramen because I'm traveling everywhere. Yes. But yeah, how do I figure out how much money do I actually need for retirement? And that way I find that good balance of living well now, but also living well when I'm old. Absolutely. Great question. And I think, you know, if it was one number that we all aim towards, I think it'd be a lot easier for everyone. That number used to be a million dollars. You make a million dollars, you save that much, and you're okay to retire because you should be able to live off of that for the next 20, 30 years because all the interest that you create every year and all the return on investments. That's no longer the case, I think, because one, it makes a lot of assumptions about how we live. And two, the cost of living has gone up quite a bit. Everyone's living longer. So your money could potentially run out. So I think you need more than a million dollars. Now, you know, there was this study that was done years ago looking at how much you need to withdraw from your retirement account so that it safely goes for the next 30 years. They came up with a number called 4%. Now, from the study, they did some analysis and that's what they came up with. You could argue if that number is correct or not, but let's assume that's the number that we can work with. So the other assumption that goes into this is how much money, you know, from your salary that you're making now do you need to live going forward? Let's say you're, you're an attending, you're making $250,000. Do you need that much to live when you retire? I would argue you probably don't because now your expenses are a lot lower. You probably paid off your house. Your kids may have gone to college. You don't have that many expenses. So then you have to come up with, all right, do I need 50% of that? Do I need 40% of that? Do I need 80%? If you have a budget, then you will figure this out easily, right? Exactly. You have exactly. It all in the app, in the Excel sheet, because you listen to the first part that Sai was talking about. See, yeah. it's, it's all about listening to what Sai is saying. Have <laughs> your budget. See, Sai, we are listening. Yeah, no, that's that's great. The budget is a great tool to get you to this point where you're like, all right, how much do I need now to yes. retire? So you calculate that, you look at your budget and you figure out how much of that is you are still actually going to need at that time. 
because your house is paid off, maybe your car, maybe your loan, hopefully your loans, they're gone. Um, and then you calculate what that is, and that would be the 4% of the total if you're planning on being retired for 30 years. Did I get that right? Yeah, essentially, that's correct. 4%, if, if you think about a million dollars, if that was the old number that we used to use, 4% is like... 40 grand. 40,000. Yeah, 40,000. So can you live off $40,000 a year? And if you can, great. If not, which I would argue, that's probably maybe difficult to do. So then you have to calculate, all right, how much do Especially I really need to... Especially inflation and all of that, so... Yeah, that's true. Got so it. probably oh. not. Yeah. And then other part of this that we haven't really talked about is Social Security. Everyone's going to get Social Security. And that's, you know, you could argue how much that'll be in the future. Hopefully it's still there in the future. But there is that part that you'll get every year as well. So so you do talk a lot about Social Security in the article. And it's definitely something that's worth going back to and reading about. But from what I've read as well is that the safest thing is to assume that Social Security does not exist. And that way, if it is there and it's sizable, then you have a pretty good cushion. But you should act as if it doesn't exist in that way. You don't have any unpleasant surprises, especially when you're younger and you can't guarantee what's going to happen in 30 years. Because, I mean, things change day to day because there are all these new tax laws that I barely understand. So, Sai, how do these new tax laws affect us? I mean, tax laws have definitely changed back in 2018. I think the biggest things to take away are that, for the most part, everyone's tax bracket's probably a little bit lower. I will argue that if you're a single EM physician, your tax bracket actually may be slightly higher. But for the most part, let's just say it's a little lower. I think they tried to simplify it, but now it may not as make much sense to buy a house. People used to buy a house because it's a good tax benefit. I think you really have to look at the laws and see if it makes sense for you because the way they changed some of the ways you can deduct money off your tax return. I guess the other bottom line for these new tax laws is most people will take what we call the standard deduction and you're not going to itemize. So that's just something to keep in mind when you do your taxes. It's supposed to be simpler now uh, with the tax laws, but there's enough things in there that if you did itemize and take money like your interest interest from your house and property tax and state tax, you can't do as much anymore. So with simplicity comes a little bit of disadvantages. So just be careful. Talk to your accountant if you have one and make sure you're doing the right things with your tax return. Got it. So this was a very interesting conversation, Sai, and it's definitely something that we don't talk about often enough in, as you said, in residency or even after that. And I think that we just get complacent and we don't teach ourselves this. So thank you so much for starting the conversation. Definitely, you have to have a budget, whether it's old school pen and paper Excel sheet using one of the apps, but you need to know what you're doing. And then you need to figure out what your model numbers are, which, as you said, is 50, 30, 20, or even more than 20 for your savings. And then after you figure that part out, you need to decide how much you need for retirement and how can you pay off your student debt ASAP, and then how much money goes into stocks and bonds. And then with that, you can get a financial advisor if you want to, but definitely understand how they're taking your money as well and make sure it's someone you trust. And with uh, stocks, you don't necessarily have to sit there and nitpick. That's where you have like the mutual funds that can either be managed by a human being or a computer, really. And then with retirement, if someone's giving you money, take it. That's, I think, kind of like the overview of this, but definitely an interesting article. Yeah, definitely check out figure one, which outlines kind of which stage you are in your career starting in medical school and what kind of things should you focus on. Because you can't sit around and say, oh, it's too early for me to do this or it's too late for me to do this. There is something to do in every single stage. And this is a fantastic figure in the article. Thank you so, so much, Sai, for one, writing this article because it is so helpful. And two, coming on the podcast and talking to us. Yeah. 
Oh, of course. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking about these topics. And, you know, like I said, there's so much more to talk about, but that'll be another day. We'll do another podcast, hopefully. And then this has been great. All right. Well, awesome. Thanks, Sai. Thank you, guys. For our critical image this month, there's actually a case of a woman presenting with symptoms that are quite similar to biliary colic that she's experienced before, but she's had a cholecystectomy many years ago. This case is a fantastic reminder that you can still have cholecystitis and all the other biliary stone complications, even if you don't have an actual gallbladder. So just because someone doesn't have their gallbladder doesn't mean that you don't need to ultrasound their right upper quadrant. Very true. If the ultrasound is equivocal, though, then you may need an MRCP. Great reminder. All right. The drug box this month. Let me try this new drug name. Ubro. It's just like Uber. It's Ubro Japan. I'm going to go with that. So it's Uber Japan and pants in the same word. Okay. Uber Japan. Something like that. (laughs) Sorry. I think drug companies need to also give us, you know, pronunciation guides. (laughs) But it is an interesting drug. It's a calcitonin gene-related peptide receptor antagonist. That was a mouthful. We need to come up. I was going to say, I think we need to come up with better names for receptors, too. (laughs) Essentially, it's actually a treatment, a new treatment for acute migraines, not for migraine prophylaxis, though. It's an oral medication that you can give a second dose two hours later. That's really new, so definitely more studies are needed to compare its efficacy against, you know, our our existing migraine therapies. So hopefully that would give us more time to practice pronouncing it before it's available in ED near you. Exactly. So our Tox Box this month talks about bleach ingestion, which may be a surprise to a lot of people, but all that a household bleach would do to an adult who swallowed it is local irritation. It's really not a big deal. I am not saying that you should swallow bleach. Right. (laughs) Okay, let's just be really clear. But swallowing bleach is not that big of a deal. Now, I'm talking about household bleach. Industrial bleach, completely other beast. Child, completely other beast. Mixing your household bleach with things so that you would inhale the gas and pass out, not what I'm talking about today. All right? So drinking your regular good old Clorox, not not that bad. Not recommended. (laughs) Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. It is not that bad. However, that's something to keep in mind is that if people start vomiting, then the aspiration from that is what gets you into trouble. So don't do it, but don't completely freak out when it happens. Got it. So thank you, Wendy, for going through this issue with me. I have learned a lot. I've learned how to keep my finances in order. So I really need to stop this podcast so I can go and do the budget thing. But I've also learned a lot from all of the things in this issue. And our dear listeners, we hope that you had fun and you've learned as much as we did on this podcast. Reach out to us on our Twitter accounts. We would love to hear from you. Whether your thoughts, your cases, your feedback. My account is at Danya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month, bye-bye.